0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast series, Immersa, People and Passion, sponsored by the ATTC Network. I'm your host, Doreen Bader, the Executive Director of Immersa. This week, we'll be hearing about barriers to treatment for opioid use disorder. Why aren't pharmacists stalking buprenorphine? Our subject matter experts on this topic are Drs. Lucas Hill and Lindsay Laura, moderated by Dr. Jeffrey Bradford. Dr. Lucas Hill graduated from the UMKC School of Pharmacy and completed a combined residency fellowship in the UPMC Department of Family Medicine. He is now a clinical assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy, where he founded the PHARM program and led implementation of Operation Naloxone. Dr. Hill is the principal investigator of a five-year, $25 million TTOR grant, which seeks to address the opioid crisis in Texas by educating health professionals and the public while conducting pragmatic research. Dr. Lindsay Laura graduated from the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy, and is currently completing a two-year fellowship with the FARM program. In this role, she will develop an innovative clinical pharmacy practice at an outpatient medical home for SUD and conduct statewide research exploring the pharmacist's role in addiction treatment. She previously served as president of the Student Pharmacist Recovery Network and co-founded the Addiction Medicine Advanced Pharmacy Practice Experience. Dr. Jeffrey Bradberg studies what community pharmacist roles play regarding opioid safety, opioid overdose, harm reduction and opioid use disorders. He is a consultant or co-investigator on two federal grants, a randomized control trial of pharmacists' use of a CPA to manage medications for opioid use disorder and a multi-state randomized control trial testing the effectiveness of a pharmacist and pharmacy-focused intervention to improve naloxone provision, non-prescription syringe access, and buprenorphine dispensing in the community pharmacies.
1: All right. Thank you both for being here, Lindsay and Lucas. Uh, I'm Jeff Bradberg, and and we're all pharmacists interested in increasing access to addiction therapies uh, through community pharmacies and there are 68,000 community pharmacies across the nation located within, you know, two to five miles of every citizen. So in the spectrum of how we provide care, pharmacists and pharmacies are instrumental in providing care, especially to one of uh, three principal uh, addiction medications, buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is a Schedule Three opioid agonist, and actually it's a partial antagonist. It works on receptors In the brain to reduce cravings and opioid use disorder. And it's extraordinarily effective and safe for treating pain. And one of the main advantages to it is that it reduces deaths by uh, 50% at least, maybe as much as 79% in places where it's very available. It's really truly a wonder drug and um, something that we're very happy to have accessible. However, there are many limitations in how it's accessible through prescribers, and I sort of keep wondering why that is in this FDA-approved drug we've had around for almost 20 years. At the beginning, first, prescribers could only be physicians. They still need to get eight hours of waiver training. They have to register with federal agencies to prescribe it, limited to 30 patients the first year, then 100 patients uh, through expansion of the federal statute. Further statutes in just the last few years expanded, the prescribing ability to nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. Also, the patient limits went up to about 275 for certain categories of prescribers. Uh, One other limitation in terms of that training is that PAs and NPs had to get 24 hours of training to get the waiver and register and, and prescribe for their patients. Many organizations have lobbied to increase access to buprenorphine through eliminating or modifying this X waiver. It's a X attached to the DEA number that controlled substance prescribers can have. Of course, pharmacists, we're all pharmacists here. We're not able to get a DEA X waiver. We're not included on that list of prescribers. Although some pharmacists in some states can actually prescribe controlled substances, we can't prescribe uh, this controlled substance. So, and people can get buprenorphine through opioid treatment programs that are principally uh, dispensing and administering methadone, but they can also get it from pharmacists um, uh, with a valid prescription. So we saw a real big change in access to buprenorphine uh, after many government agencies and organizations really lauded the efficacy of medications for addiction treatment um, or medications for opioid use disorder, as it's called. A year ago in March of 2020, the COVID pandemic forced agencies to ensure continuous access, because when people don't have access to buprenorphine, just like any other opioid, they can go into uh, withdrawal and perhaps access uh, less, less pure substances from unregulated substances, unregulated opioids that are much more dangerous, perhaps more potent, and do not effectively treat opioid use disorder. And so through that pandemic, we saw uh, changes in DEA controlled substance prescribing. We saw changes in SAMHSA regulations, and so it permitted a wonderful experiment, so to speak, because it does. It is time limited to the pandemic, uh, where you can have audio only induction. I practice in in Rhode Island, and Rhode Island is is one of a couple states that has a buprenorphine hotline where you can call this line get diagnosed with opioid use disorder and and have buprenorphine accessible through a pharmacy, which again, throughout the pandemic, community pharmacies were always open. Uh, Some OTPs, some prescriber offices closed, they always were available and and determined to be essential. And so through pharmacies and pharmacies themselves, increased access to buprenorphine and other controlled substances through contactless uh, delivery, curbside pickup, expanded drive-through accessibility, and, and even mailing out some of these controlled substances just to maintain people and as well as to sustain effective therapy for people who started through those audio-only perceptions or audio-only prescriptions and inductions for buprenorphine. However, even though we've talked about the limitations, we've talked about the expansions that are temporary, Lindsay and Lucas were part of a team that published work on other limitations, stocking limitations of buprenorphine in certain pharmacies. And so I'm going to ask Lindsay to talk about, just describe what was the issue? What were some of these pharmacy level barriers that you identified in your work?
2: Thank you, Jeff. It's so good to be here. Recent evidence indicates there are pharmacy barriers in accessing buprenorphine naloxone and naloxone. And the availability of buprenorphine hasn't been rigorously evaluated. So under Lucas's leadership, our team conducted telephone audits in multiple U.S. states to assess availability of both buprenorphine naloxone films and naloxone nasal spray in community pharmacies. And we compared availability by pharmacy type, you know, being chain versus independent pharmacies. And we also looked at metropolitan status. And since we are in Texas, we our first state was Texas, and our audit was done via telephone with a secret shopper approach. For our Texas phone calls, we had a team of six people, and we divided up calling 800 random pharmacies that were licensed with the Texas State Board of Pharmacy. And we all followed a standardized telephone script where we asked to speak to the pharmacists, And we asked if both of these medications were in stock and we expected availability of both of these to be low. And unfortunately, our hypothesis was correct for Texas, a little less than 35% of pharmacies reported having both the buprenorphine naloxone films. And we were calling about the eight slash two milligram strength. So a little less than 35% reported having buprenorphine naloxone films and naloxone nasal spray. And of the remaining that did not have buprenorphine naloxone, we asked them, are you willing to order it? And if so, how many days will it take? And just a little bit more than 60% were even willing to order it. And the average ordering time was two days. So obviously the results of um, this study are very concerning because individuals who are started on buprenorphine, they can't wait two days for their medication to come in. And this audit showed that, you know, individuals are going to have to go to multiple different pharmacies before they even find one that has buprenorphine readily available to dispense after, you know, leaving treatment if they're in inpatient treatment. And we've replicated this audit in other states across the U.S. And availability, again, unfortunately, seems to be poor overall, with some states doing slightly better than others. But a huge need and a huge area for improvement.
1: Great. That's a great summary of the study and obviously very concerning. This isn't like other uh, non-pharmacologic therapies for chronic diseases like addiction, where it's probably concerning to our listeners that people go two days without their counseling, but we can probably do that. Another part of the pandemic is that uh, some forms of counseling are now more accessible through, uh, through audiovisual means. And so that's increased access for some who have the technological means. But if you don't have the technological means uh, to get to a pharmacy, the pharmacy's open, but they're not stocking it. you know that's or they say they're not stocking it. I think that's really concerning. What do you think are some of the misconceptions related to buprenorphine or overall medications for opioid use disorder? How do those play into this lack of stocking or lack of ability to order?
2: I think part of this pharmacy barrier can be tied to like one of the common misconceptions that comes to mind related to buprenorphine is the misunderstandings of buprenorphine and false or overblown concerns about euphoria, misuse or diversion of buprenorphine. A person who is completely opioid naive, sure, you know, they, they could take buprenorphine and maybe be able to derive some level of euphoria. But like you said, buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So it certainly wouldn't be a level of euphoria, anything like that of a full agonist. And when persons are buying buprenorphine illegally, it's often being purchased to avoid withdrawal and it's not because it's being misused. And many formulations of buprenorphine are sublingual combination products that have naloxone in it. And so this combination essentially makes the prescription tamper resistant because naloxone is not absorbed when taken sublingually. So it has no effect. And if it were to be crushed and snorted or injected, naloxone would have an effect and blunt the effects of buprenorphine. So a common misconception that I hear from healthcare professionals, but I think pharmacists in particular, are around these misunderstandings of the medication buprenorphine itself.
1: Yeah, clearly it sounds like there's a lot of education that can be done, and we'll talk about that in a, a little later. Um, it's interesting you talk about the films, and and you specifically asked about what I perceive to be the most common combination product. Maybe delving a little deeper into the study uh, is did you, you know, why didn't you design the study for asking about buprenorphine pills or asking about single entity uh, products because those are often uh, less expensive and and I. I think that you didn't ask about an insurance status. Your callers used a script just to ask about whether it was in stock or not, right? So there wasn't an investigation even further into financial barriers, correct?
2: Right. We did not look into financial barriers. And we went with the films and the eight slash two milligram strength after surveying both local and non-local addiction medicine physicians and providers and it was indicated by these providers to our team that this might be the most common formulation and strength that a patient would be started on if they were in inpatient treatment and discharged. But certainly a limitation to our study is that we only evaluated that one formulation. It is possible that some of these pharmacies, maybe they did have you know these other formulations of buprenorphine. But we went with that strength just because that's what um, was recommended to us by providers.
1: So it it sounds like it's a pretty good representation of of sort of, you know, the stocking of buprenorphine overall in terms of, you know, you didn't ask for generic and brand. It was just, do you have, like, I'm wondering if there's a misconception of, you know, did you stock the generic or did you stock the brand name Suboxone? Did that occur?
2: Right. We did ask about brand and generic, and if it was indicated to us that either the brand or the generic was not in stock, we did ask for ordering time on both of those.
1: Sounds like a pretty thorough evaluation, and it's it's great that you're looking at other states. I'm going to talk to Lucas about fears that pharmacists have regarding stocking and dispensing buprenorphine. What do you perceive? What did you get out of this study? What other comments do you have? Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, you know,
3: thanks to Immersa for having us and, and being willing to highlight the role of pharmacists and and lift up some some pharmacist voices who want to be more active in this this awesome organization. Um, thank you to you for you know leading the way as as the pharmacist at Merce for for quite some time, and now you you know you got a group of us uh, involved. So uh, anyway, I wanted to say thanks for that, and then. Um, You know, I think that when we when we started planning to do this audit and we were starting to talk about this back in the fall of 2019, at that point, it was mostly just rumblings. It was discussions, anecdotal comments on Twitter from prescribers and, you know, what we thought of as pretty liberal northeastern states a lot of times saying, uh, you know, my patient left jail, or my patient left inpatient treatment, or or came to me for the first time in the OBOT and they just couldn't find a place that would fill their bup. And uh, and then there are these, you know, uh, you know how Twitter can be. There occasionally these trollish pharmacist uh, posts about they they don't carry buprenorphine, and they uh, they'll put up a sign that we don't have any opioids here, and and treating bup the same way. Um, So we had this sort of general perception, and then we've gotten much better research data in the past year and a half, two years from multiple sources. And so Lindsay told you about our initial audit in Texas, um, but maybe even more instructive in a lot of ways is a paper from Hannah Cooper and some others in Kentucky, including our friend Trish Freeman. And it was a qualitative survey Of 14 pharmacists in Kentucky, and if I'm remembering correctly, there were 12 pharmacists who said that they would uh, refuse to fill some or all seemingly valid buprenorphine prescriptions for OUD, and that that got us a little nervous. Um, You know, that's that's a problem. Uh, I, I suspect I speak for all of us when I say that we believe that pharmacists do have a role to play in stopping the line when there's an inappropriate prescription when there's dangerous uh, or or uh, ineffective treatment going on but this is uh, this is not the way to do it this is not the situation in which to do it um so we've got to figure out a way to to address this problem right or, or to at least better characterize it so anyway i'll say that um going back to the cooper paper the most commonly cited concern and underlying reason, at least that pharmacists were willing to share during a, a survey, was uh, concerns about scrutiny from the DEA or maybe more correctly from the wholesaler. Um, so we've got this situation in which the DEA is going around and doing presentations at state pharmacy board meetings or state pharmacy association meetings, CE programs about uh, something called corresponding responsibility. Essentially, hey, pharmacists, if some uh, unethical prescribing is going on and you should have been able to tell, you're going to potentially be held accountable for that. So there's a lot of talk right now about pharmacist liability, kind of from the legal or DEA standpoint. In reality, I think the risk to a pharmacist who's, uh, who's acting ethically is quite low. But where the risk really comes in at this point seems to be from the wholesalers, the the people who are selling the controlled substances to the pharmacies, the middlemen, because they are facing massive lawsuits in uh, pretty much every US state. They are going to have big findings against them. And so they, with pressure from the DEA, and more importantly, uh, money pressure, they really are putting into place audits of pharmacies that have increases in controlled substance ordering especially opioid ordering we've spoken to some pharmacists who have faced audits who have faced pressure to stop ordering so much buprenorphine even when the at least as it was told to us the audit showed no problems uh, no no invalid or inappropriate prescribing practices these drug distributors they just look at bup the same way they look at other opioids and they're they're starting to implement some firm limits, or or in some cases less clear limits,
1: but it's enough to to make some pharmacists wary. That's a great summary. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm just going to highlight a couple things for our audience, and and maybe ask for some explanations from you guys so that everybody's on the same page. So it, I think it's stunning that I want our audience to realize that people with valid prescriptions, like these, are not invalid prescriptions. People call pharmacies all the time to see if medications are in stock, and are, and usually get a correct answer. So it's a valid uh, mechanism. But people with a valid, you know, the Cooper paper I'm familiar with as well. You know, they present with valid Rx, and they won't they won't fill it. And and sometimes it's with I think another subtlety of that qualitative study is that some pharmacists would say I want to maintain. Medication for my current people, and some will say I don't want to start. You know, I don't. I can't start a new person because I'm going to have to ration this. When very importantly, there is no shortage of buprenorphine. There is no. There's multiple products. There's multiple generic products, and so I think refusing that in the name of corresponding responsibility, which again is really a a DEA legal term where pharmacists can refuse any prescription that they feel is going to be used in a non-medical way, essentially. But this is a valid prescription. Um, I think the other thing I want one of you to explain is what are audits? Again, just overall, pharmacists are the medication safety experts. Buprenorphine is one of the safest opioids. And if we called all of those pharmacies and asked if they had oxycodone or hydrocodone, they would all 100% tell you they have plenty in stock, is my guess. But when we do audits, uh, do you want to explain what the audit process is and why it's sort of such a fearful aspect and maybe the difference between audits of corporate uh, chain community pharmacies and independent pharmacies and why, you know, maybe some differences there?
3: Yeah, that's a so useful point to to differentiate, too, that when we use the term audit to relate to our study design, you know, we're essentially doing a an assessment of whether or not the pharmacist will report to a patient uh, or to a proposed patient that they have the medication in stock. And, and we thought that that would closely mimic the experience of a patient as opposed to some past surveys among pharmacists, whether it be the Cooper paper or a previous work from Doug Thornton or Dan Bentricelli uh, asking pharmacists to, to state whether or not they carry buprenorphine to someone who they know as a researcher or potentially going through and saying, okay, tell me all the doses of buprenorphine and formulations you currently have in stock, um, because those don't actually approximate the experience of a patient who's unknown to the pharmacy trying to access it. So, so that was why we designed our, our audit study in that manner. When we use the term audit to refer to what a, a pharmacy may experience as a result of scrutiny from their drug wholesaler, uh, from the State Board of Pharmacy, from a legal entity like the DEA, we're certainly talking about an entirely different experience, something that has real risks associated with it. And the, as far as legal liability, or sanctioning against their pharmacy license their ability to order controlled substances which will be essential to to their livelihood and and so stop me if i if that hasn't been sufficiently detailed jeff but i think that's a good segue into an explanation of why the differences we've seen in our audits so far have been so massive between independent and chain pharmacies
1: yeah i think that's right i think it's it was just important that i think people go in their pharmacy they get their meds they call there's medications there why is this so different for buprenorphine i think we've explained that you know why is this why is the dea interested in buprenorphine the safest opioid versus other opioids and you know and why can pharmacists refuse to stock you know why can they refuse to do their why are they afraid of i think as you said their livelihood because wholesaler or dea audits could result in lots of fines To the pharmacy. And if a pharmacist dispenses a medication that they think is going to be used for non-medical reasons or illegitimate medical purpose, I think is the term, they can also get massive personal DEA fines and lose their license. So realize there's lots of pressures in community pharmacies. Sometimes I think it's just easier to say no, and that's enhanced by all the stigma issues and things that Lindsay had talked about. But yeah, let's talk about sort of now that we have that sort of legal picture. And the threats that are different to corporate versus independent. Talk about why uh, you saw differences there.
3: To get uh, more detailed on those results, real quick, you know, Lindsay talked about a little over one third of Texas pharmacies, for example, having a one week supply of generic Suboxone films, one box of Narcan nasal spray when we called to do the the original study if you pull that apart by chain pharmacies or pharmacies that have five or more pharmacies in the state of Texas so you know we're talking about major chains here like CVS Walgreens and grocery stores that are that are specific to Texas 45% of those pharmacies had both meds ready to dispense and it was significantly higher than in independent pharmacies significantly higher for each agent individually So in independent pharmacies where there might only be one, up to four in the state, uh, and they're kind of run by people, pharmacists who have a direct financial stake, the pharmacy availability of these two medications was only 12%. And willingness to order was also lower with less than half of independent pharmacies that did not have the meds in stock uh, or did not have the bup in stock willing to order it. Um, So There's no doubt that we're seeing this difference, and and I'll preview that preliminary results from other states are, this is incredibly consistent. Uh, Independent pharmacies are far, far less likely to have these medications in stock and less likely to be willing to order them. And it really doesn't have that much to do, at least from, from what we can tell so far, with whether it's in a metropolitan, micropolitan, or rural area. It's just independent pharmacies, even in cities, are way less likely to have buprenorphine in stock. I think it comes back to this this concern that you've noted, Jeff, about the risk of a DEA wholesaler state board uh, audit, and that if you're just a one of several pharmacists at one of many stores for a big chain that has you know huge legal power, uh, you're you have a, just a lot less liability on your head as an individual in that scenario. And so I think we're seeing these independent pharmacies look at it in a different way financially and and from a liability risk. I will also add, and and this might be new information to non-pharmacists, but you don't make very much money on a prescription. Sometimes you lose money on a prescription. So every time that quantity 14 of buprenorphine naloxone films is dispensed, the pharmacist might make two or three bucks on that prescription, they might lose a dollar. Probably they'll make a couple bucks. uh, But let's say that it comes in a 30 count bottle. And so now they got 16 on the shelf and they're in a rural area and there aren't any x waivered prescribers around uh, and they don't get it very often. And, And the dose that's prescribed is gonna vary and it may not be that one again. It's not unheard of that that other 16 expires on the shelf and it's a substantial net loss to the pharmacy to have ever dispensed the initial buprenorphine. Now, that's not a I'm not defending that that that's makes it okay that that they're not stocking it or or not willing to stock it or order it, um but it is one of the issues that came up. There were comments from some of the pharmacists that said I won't order it for quantity 14. Um we'll have to get a new prescription from prescriber for 30 and And maybe sometimes that'll work, but that's going to be a delay, and the prescriber may not want to prescribe for longer than you know quantity fourteen. So there are major issues, but there's no doubt we've got a bigger problem among independent pharmacies, and stigma, I'm sure, is involved in the discussion, but there are real logistical barriers that are that are different uh, different risks.
1: It's definitely difficult to separate out. Even by a phone call or even some of the work we do, we have pharmacists trained as academic detailers to talk about buprenorphine in in our federal studies. And, you know, we get lots of different reactions, whether we're in person, whether we're calling from the people who tell us one thing we send in. We call them fidelity checkers, not secret shoppers, but it's kind of the same thing. Um, It's all approved by institutional review boards. But they come in and then tell us something completely different. And so, you know, we're still analyzing those results, but it's it's really fascinating how, you know, do you have a financial stake? Do you have stigma? Which one wins out? Is it that you have knowledge or you don't have knowledge of the law or you're interpreting it different related to everything from selling over-the-counter syringes and paraphernalia laws to... To naloxone possession and and, and offending customers. Because that's the other thing, you know, going back to COVID's influence, you know, these independent pharmacies depend on people being in their stores, no matter what type of area they're in. And if the perception of one customer is, why is this person picking up buprenorphine? You know, then, you're, then you fear customer flow even more so through the pandemic. And I think even though we have data that expansion of, of Medicaid has reduced deaths associated with the reduction in deaths due to overdose from opioid use disorder, overdose uh, fatalities. Medicaid reimbursement is still exceptionally low in places. So I, I'm guessing if we had more specific data, we'd see differences in Medicaid coverage versus Medicare coverage. And, and we saw that in a previous study from Wakeman and colleagues where there was a greater time delay to starting buprenorphine and getting an appointment with a prescriber if people were publicly insured versus privately insured. So I'm sure that there's some type of parallel going on in independent pharmacies that financial reimbursement stake. And and again, expiring meds on the on the on the shelf, you're not going to cover if something's not selling in any kind of business, you're not going to keep it on the shelf and you're going to say no because you're afraid of that. So I think that was a great detail. It's probably time to talk about solutions, don't you think? <laughs> okay? Let's try. All right. So why don't we start to say, you know, where do we go from here? What are what are you doing? What's happening at your institution, at in your state? What do we we have these results? What do we do to try to increase access to beparphing?
3: Well, education uh, is certainly an area that we're emphasizing. So when we're thinking about the modules that we develop into the Doctor of Pharmacy program for our students, every every PharmD student at UT for five years now has been educated on the basics of overdose response and naloxone dispensing during new student orientation. Uh, they all engage in a, a simulated encounter where it's normalized to sell syringes without a prescription, without hassling people, and to offer them naloxone and to talk to them about harm reduction resources and opioid use disorder treatment in, in sort of a non-confrontational manner. We've got a an 11 hour, pharmacotherapy of addiction course that that is part of the required curriculum. So we've built in a pretty substantial thread that I hope is going to lead to our students being better equipped upon graduation. But we recognize that we've got to do something also to reach current practicing pharmacists. And so that's part of why we developed the Texas Opioid Training Initiative, TXOTI.org. We just got a fancy new website, state-branded website the other day. Got some incredible presenters, including EmerA member Stefan Cortez talking about key issues in the opioid crisis or or you know with uh, that has air quotes around it uh, so we we think that we can we can leverage education to have some impact, but we also know those are going to be voluntary educational experiences, and so you're going to get people who are already open to the message so i don't know to be entirely honest how we get others on board. I suspect that financial incentives would be helpful. uh you know money always helps, so we are discussing whether there might be models we could explore to reimburse pharmacies for any potential loss that that that's incurred from carrying buprenorphine products if they do expire on the shelf. maybe financial incentive. To carry some of the common formulations and to main, maintain stock, and maybe we do like a fidelity assessment and, and that uh, you know their payment is not provided if, if we don't aren't able to confirm fidelity, something like that. So those are those are some immediate ideas. I think we also would love to pilot broader initiatives like a program where we would engage pharmacists to collaborate with a telehealth provider to be doing brief interim assessments of opioid use disorder management and medication efficacy and safety to administer long acting injectable medications for opioid use disorder, uh, including naltrexone, but also hopefully buprenorphine given improved relative efficacy. So those are all things that jump out at us as potential options to address this. You know, one one other option that uh, pharmacists may not like broadly, but uh, it's been shown to work for, for other drugs, would be to just mandate that pharmacies always have certain doses of buprenorphine in stock, uh, make it a, a legal or board mandate, and and maybe that would help.
1: Well, that's definitely supported by the American Pharmacists Association, is that medications of public health importance, well, I would try, full transparency, I, I wrote that. I had- <laughs> But the American Pharmacists Association, the, the largest uh, pharmacy organization, has supported you know, mandating that meds of public health importance. I think we see lots of different public health meds like emergency contraception or even oral contraceptives themselves being refused to be stocked in the uh, in pharmacies and, and especially in areas where they need to be accessible. One thing, I, I'm actually interested to hear what Lindsay has to say. I, I understand she took part in some of those educational activities to be interested to hear Uh, Your perspective of, you know, you're a fellow now, you clearly were influenced by it.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with all of the initiatives that Lucas mentioned. And in terms of education, one thing that I didn't get in my education, but that I got in my role as a fellow and assisting with the education of our students that I really loved was I think it's important to incorporate persons with lived experience into the educational programming. That we do. And so at UT Austin, I got to assist Lucas in a module where we actually brought in peer recovery support specialists to talk to medical, pharmacy, nursing, and social work students. And some of these students, you know, the medical and pharmacy students, were in their very first year of school. And I think this is such a great way to set the stage and the tone for the foundation of which we build upon their SUD education. Um, so that's one thing that I think was really cool. And that's just when you have people with lived experience sharing their personal stories, you know, that makes people feel a certain way and people will remember how they felt. And so it's my hope that they will recall back to that whenever they're out in their future practice. But in terms of my Education with the help of Lucas and our College of Pharmacy, we created a fourth year clinical rotation in several different uh, addiction medicine sites, ranging from inpatient to outpatient care. And we have expanded this experience to try and reach more students. Right now, it's uh, we started with two students, and now we've increased to four. But I think that's just a really great way to have students get exposure and knowledge prior to graduation.
1: That's such a great message, Lindsay. And we didn't even script this, but our lived experience is uh, as the focus of our Immersa 2021 virtual meeting. And uh, where I, I'm i sure your group will have abstracts to submit as well. Abstracts and workshops are able to be submitted right now on Immersa.org. Really appreciate Lucas and, and Lindsay you sharing the curriculum. I'm interested. I, you know, we talk. We're talking to a lot of different professionals. Do you have people other than pharmacists and people with lived experience working together? Is there some kind of interprofessional work that's done where you were at?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We are fortunate to to collaborate with uh, Rich Botner, a physician assistant who leads the the B team at the Delstate Medical Center for inpatient buprenorphine initiation. We also have a a member of our program, a faculty member, Dr. Carlos Torado, a physician and and addiction psychiatrist, who has been an essential partner to helping us get pharmacy students exposed in experiential environments to to addiction treatment. And we have psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, Amanda Simonton. We've got uh, social workers involved in, in our collaborations as well. So I'm sure I'm missing people, but having a an interprofessional focus from the beginning it strengthens everything we do, even from an academic and sort of funding standpoint. You know, we can apply for a much broader range of federal grants that support both our educational and our clinical work when we have interprofessional collaborators, and it just puts us in a stronger position during the peer review process. So I certainly would encourage you all to, to do that in your own work. And again, it, it just makes me very appreciative for Immersa as an organization. I think that it's it's welcoming to a variety of professions in a way that other professional organizations just tend not to be. Um, so thank you again for inviting us and letting us speak about this topic.
1: All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll definitely promote through our Twitter account and our, our meeting and, and all the other things, of course, if Anyone wants to be a member, you can go to MRSA.org, amersa.org, a m e r s a dot o r g, and and sign up and hear about our meeting. Sign up to be a member. Join some of our special interest groups. Uh, I think about fifty percent of the pharmacy special interest group is on this call. But <laughs> I'm doing. We're doing our best to try to recruit folks. And and again, I agree. It's been absolutely welcoming. And uh, and we hope that through those interprofessional arrangements, we can use Immersa as a powerful advocate. We've advocated, we have several statements on our website about removing the X waiver, promoting pharmacists, my colleagues, we've published work on the impact of these regulatory changes on access to buprenorphine. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us and for publishing the work and doing all the research service and education you're doing and, and being part of Immersa and promoting our message. Thank you very much. That
0: was Doctors Lucas Hill and Lindsay Laura in conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Bratberg on the topic of barriers to treatment for opioid use disorder. Why aren't pharmacists stalking buprenorphine?
1: To learn more about the ATTC Network and the Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction, please visit our websites at attcnetwork.org and immersa.org. For a transcript of this podcast and other related resources, please visit the ATTC Network website. This podcast is supported by funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or SAMHSA. Information shared and views expressed reflect the speaker's best understanding of science or promising practices at the time of recording and should not be seen as directives. Content related to privacy and security in 42 CFR Part 2 presented during these sessions should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners are directed to discuss recommendations with their agency's legal counsel. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us again.